Good morning, everyone. Um, thank you for the warm welcome. Um, thank you for for having me here today to to speak on this passage in the Word of God. Um, I'm looking down and definitely seeing some new faces I haven't seen before. So, um, as as Jordan mentioned, my name is Dan Dan Bennett, and I come from the assembly at Riverside or Riverside Christian Assembly. And uh, all the saints there give their warm warm greetings to everyone here. So it's great to be here, and it's great to be able to share with you God's word today. So let's turn to the Gospel of Mark, please. Gospel of Mark. Of course, Mark is. The Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's how he opens his book. Uh, he makes no attempt in hiding his intention of, of what he's trying to, to convince his readers of as he writes this, this book. The Gospel, the good news of Jesus. And he wants to, to tell us about this man, this man called Jesus. Who is more than a man? Who is more than simply a good man? More than simply a great man? More than even just a great prophet? He is Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah. And more than that, he is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Um, And and Mark has written this, this book... To, to tell us, to convince us that that's who this man is. And he does so by presenting to us his life. He shows us his life. And he crams his book full. It's almost, you know, I have to catch your breath with how much he fits into these 16 chapters. He crams it full with the life of the Lord Jesus Christ and primarily the, the interactions that he has with people. And the, the power that he shows in, in the lives that he met. And we're going to come across an instance of that today. A fascinating account of, of the Lord Jesus and his power when he meets a man that we're going to read of today. To convince us that he is, he is who he said he was. He is Jesus Christ the Son of God, and, and hopefully that is the conclusion that we come to today as we see, as we read and think about and discover what happened in this account. So let's read it then, Mark chapter 5 um, is the where we'll be today, um, but for context let's read first of all a verse in Mark chapter 4, if you don't have a Bible don't worry, I'll try and read it as plain as I can. Mark chapter 4, first of all, then, and just one verse, verse 35. So you would have looked at this last week, but let's just read it for the context. On that day, when evening had come, he, the Lord Jesus, said to them, his disciples, let us go across to the other side. And then, of course, you have the incident there of the storm on the lake, on the Sea of Galilee. Let us go across to the other side. Chapter 5, verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, or the Gadarenes, you might have written in your Bible. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. 
For he had often been sorry, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him and crying out with a loud voice he said what have you to do with me jesus son of the most high god i adjure you by god do not torment me for he was saying to him for jesus was saying to this man come out of the man you unclean spirit and jesus asked him what is your name He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away. And began to proclaim in the Decapolis, the ten cities round about, how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marvelled. What a passage. We look for the Lord's help as we consider it today. Let me give you a brief outline of how we're going to go through these verses and this great account. Um, in, in Mark's Gospel today. In the first five verses, there's four Ps for you, if you like, that kind of thing. Uh, in the first five verses, we're going to think of, of the purpose, a purpose. You know, it was no accident that the Lord Jesus ended up on the other side of the sea and met this man. There was a purpose behind it. We saw that it was his intent in verse 35 of chapter, of, of chapter 4. There was a purpose. The purpose to meet this man, we're going to see who this person was and go into a little bit more detail about what was afflicting him. But it was deliberate. And we're going to think about that purpose in verses 1 to 5. Then from verses 6 to 13, we're going to think about the power of the Lord Jesus. The power. And we're going to see the miracle itself that occurred. When Jesus Christ was confronted with a person that had gone far beyond the help that any man could give we're going to see what happens and see the absolute power and authority of the one who Mark describes as the son of God the power, the purpose, the power and then the people um, 
The people gather out, they want to see what's happened, don't they, in verse 14. The word goes out, the men who looked after the pigs, they go and tell everyone in the area what's happened. And they come to see the evidence for themselves. They want to see it with their own eyes. And we're going to see the reaction that they have. And it might be surprising, but perhaps not the more we think about it. Because it's the reaction that so many people have today when confronted with the Lord Jesus. And we're going to think about the people. And then finally we're going to think about the proclaimer. The proclaimer. You've got proclaimers in Scotland. I think they're different to the ones here. Uh, the proclaimer. We're going to see a man who proclaimed in verse 20. The man who had been changed, who had been saved, set free. The reaction to him was totally different to the reaction of the crowd, the people who had gathered. And we see him there. New clothes, new mind, and with a new purpose. The purpose now to proclaim to his friends, his family, to everyone in the region around him, just how much the Lord Jesus had done for him. For him. I think it's the verse that you have at the bottom of your diary for this month, that wonderful verse in verse 19, that command of the Lord Jesus Christ, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. You know, we're here to look at this passage today and to understand it in its context, but there's so much for us to learn here. Um, The power of the Son of God didn't end at the book of Mark. It continues on today. And as we go through and we see what the Lord Jesus did for this man, we're going to see that he hasn't changed and he's doing the same for people today. You know, I wonder, this might be the very first time you've been here, maybe not, maybe you've been here many times before and you've heard heard the word of God preached from this platform. I hope it lands upon us today. This isn't just something dry that we've come to think about, but this is, this is relevant and powerful for us today and I hope we learn some things from it and are challenged, challenged by it. Let's get into the details then. Let's have a look at this passage and as I said, in the the outline verses one to five we'll think of the purpose of the lord here the purpose of jesus we read in context um chapter chapter four verse 35 um, we can see that there is an intent that he instructs the disciples he says when evening had come he said to them let us go across to the other side and you can see then in chapter 5, verse 21, which we didn't read, let's read it. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him. So what's happened here? Well, you have a great crowd at the end of chapter 4. They're here listening intently to every word of the Lord Jesus. And then he decides, right, I need to go over to the other side. And then after this incident happens in chapter 5, they tell him, the people ask him to leave. And so he does. And he goes right back to the other side again and continues almost where he left off. And a great crowd gather to him again. Clearly, when he intended to go to the other side, it was purely for the purpose that we read in chapter 5. There's an intent here. There's an intent of the Lord Jesus to see this man deliberately he knew here he was he knew and he was willing to leave all that great work that he was doing to one side and you might think why would you do this there were crowds of people you can see that in chapter four began to teach a very large crowd gathered around him and he goes back and a great crowd gathered around him what a work you might say There's thousands upon thousands of people hanging upon your every word. Why go across the lake to see this one man? Well, doesn't that just tell us something about the Lord Jesus? Every single person mattered to him. And he had had an intent, a purpose to see this person. 
Because the Lord Jesus never just saw a crowd of faces. He saw the people who were there, the individuals. And he took the time from a great work that he was doing to cross that lake through that storm to see that one man. See that one man. Where was it? Where did he go? It talks about the other side. And we mentioned in verse 1 this, this, uh, this name of the country, the Gerasenes. You might hear it as the Gadarenes. Where was it? Well, it was about southeast of the Sea of Galilee. If you can picture the map at the back of your Bible, you've got the Sea of Galilee in the north of Israel. And it's about in the southeast um, where there was this city or town called um, um, Gadara, which was about 10 kilometers from the sea itself, and then the region around it, the, the Gerasene or the Gadarene region. It was a region that had been populated by plenty of different nationalities over the years, and probably at that time was a predominantly Greek descendant um, populated place. Uh, there would have no doubt been Jews in there too, but predominantly those who weren't Jews who were living in that area. Now it's clear from the account that we read that um, the events take place right by the sea here. So we're in the region southeast but we're still right by the sea. Um, the Lord, when he steps off the boat, the man can immediately see him. We can see the pigs, they're rushing down the cliffs. It must have been a mountainous, hilly region uh, where people had decided to, to dig their tombs right there by the sea and that's, that's where the Lord Jesus was. And he goes, as we thought, with this intent to see this man. What a man he was. What a man. Um, the Bible simply describes him in verse 2 as one, a man with an unclean spirit. A man with an unclean spirit. You know, this is not the first time in Mark's Gospel, so this is not the first time you would have considered this either here at Fernie Lee. Not the first time in Mark's Gospel that we see someone afflicted in such a way. In fact, almost immediately in chapter 1, um, one of the first, if not the first miracle we have recorded in Mark's Gospel um, is the healing of a man with an unclean spirit there in Capernaum. And you can see that in verse 20, 21 onwards. Um, Mark then goes on to summarise um, various other miracles that the Lord Jesus does. And you can see in verse 34 of, of chapter 1, And he healed many who were sick with various diseases, and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak, because they knew him. And so this idea of unclean spirits and demons, demons, as it would be in the Greek they're considered parallel or, or, or the, same, the same idea, the different words for the same, the same power. But what are these, these entities then, these, these demons or these, these unclean spirits? Um, some translations, if you read in the King James, for example, might use the word devils here. But I suppose that might bring about a bit of confusion. Normally when we think of the word devils, we're thinking about the devil, or the diabolos, as it is in Greek. Um, the one who's described in chapter 3 of Mark's Gospel um, as the, the leaders of the day sought to accuse the Lord Jesus and essentially um, look at his power and claim it from the, the one who was the prince of the demons, Beelzebub. And verse 22 there of chapter 3 just references him. But that's not who we mean when we think about these unclean spirits. That is the devil. Um, he is the one who is described in the Old Testament then as, as the anointed cherub. The one created by God with great glory. Phenomenal glory. 
and majesty, but one who, who in pride sought to make himself as great as God. And we see him described as one cast out of heaven. As one who would then set himself to oppose the purposes of God wherever he could. And it is implied in scripture, and perhaps you look to this in your studies in Revelation, it is implied in scripture that at his fall, he also caused a third of the heavenly hosts to, to join him in his rebellion. And of course, the common interpretation is that these, these spiritual beings, these angels who were, who had now, now fallen, these powers, these principalities, as they're described elsewhere in the Bible, are, are these then, or they come under, these unclean spirits come under that description. Those who are under Satan's command. Now, to our, our modern and our enlightened, in brackets, or uh, quotation marks, ears, the idea of demons or, or demon possession, as it's mentioned in verse 15, or demonized really as the word is it, it, it sounds like something which should just be relegated to the realm of, of horror movies or, or perhaps the fiction section in Waterstones not for us now, we, we know better than this now of course, but far from it um, you know, my intention today is not to give a detailed defence for the existence of, of demons or these evil spirits However, it is important to emphasise the fact that when the Bible presents this account and others like it, it presents them as factual and as true. Because there will be some, and you might hear it, and perhaps you've thought this yourself, um, that, that as you read passages like this in the Bible that talk about demons and demon possession, that it's simply a misunderstanding or a uh, 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 oh, the way that uneducated people in the past misinterpreted illnesses, mental illnesses perhaps, or, or types of physical disorders such as, as epilepsy. And often you do see the manifestation of those who are possessed by these evil spirits who are under the influence of them manifesting in, in these physical disorders. But the Bible clearly kind of keeps them separate. It talked, we read that in Mark chapter 1, didn't we? The separation between those who were afflicted by sickness and those who had been possessed, or those who had been uh, under the, the, the influence of these demons. The Bible presents them as fact. Now we have to be careful because we don't want to overemphasize or underemphasize the existence of, of these powers. But it's a very um, presumptuous, and in fact... Um, totally erroneous statement that we, or erroneous way of thinking today that we have that permeates through our society and perhaps you'll think about this more this evening that um, unless we can have some hard scientific fact that these things exist then they cannot exist or rather the statement perhaps that um, unless it can be proven by science then it cannot exist you know that, that very statement itself um, it, it is, hinges the fallacy on which all this clever thinking falls down. Because the very concept that unless science can prove its existence, it cannot exist, is a statement, is a concept which itself cannot be proven by science, of course. Um, because science is simply the study and model of the physical world around us, and that's what people mean, ultimately, when they talk about that. And therefore we cannot either prove or disprove anything, it cannot either prove or disprove anything that is not of the physical world, that goes outside its definition. It cannot. So, in this sceptical world today in which we live, um, 
the answer, the, the question then might come, well, fine, you say science can either prove nor disprove the existence of that which is not physical, that which it cannot by definition address. Well, where is this demon possession today then? Show me the evidence of it out with the science that you say cannot do this. Well, let me give you two answers to that and then we'll move on. The first answer to that I'd give is it is interesting how in the Bible itself, both before and after, the Gospels, the time of the Lord Jesus, there is actually very little mentioned of, of the activity of unclean spirits possessing or influencing people. And to me, it doesn't seem like a mere coincidence that at the very time that the Son of God walked the earth, the accounts of, of demonic activity in the Bible shoot through the roof. I think there is, there is a point to be made there. However, that is not to say that such things do not and could not occur today. They do. But it is important to remember too that this all fits into the overall intention of, of Satan, the one who we mentioned already, that great deceiver who has set himself against the purposes of God. To, to turn mankind away from God, to distrust God just like he did there right at the beginning and to keep them as far away from God as possible. So in our society, which in which he has so, sex, so, so successfully nourished this belief in materialism and secularism, it would indeed seem a bit counterproductive perhaps to produce anything which might make men or women consider the possibility that anything else, particularly anything spiritual, could exist. But that's not to say that demonic activity is not present in the world today. And nor not present in our society today. It absolutely is. Because the Bible makes it clear that as the one who it describes as the prince of the power of the air, the wicked machinations of Satan are always at work. And, as Paul describes in Ephesians 6, are the primary danger for Christians today. Acting, influencing through the world, um, and, and a danger for us as Christians. Now, we'll leave our discussion on the existence of, of demons and demonic activity there, and we'll summarise it simply by saying the Bible presents their existence as fact, and we would be good to do the same. Look at the awful impact that this condition, the man who had this unclean spirit, look at what, look at what it's had upon his life. It's affected nearly every single area of his life. Look, it's affected him socially. Um, he's there, he's living in the tombs. He's now separate from the friends he had before. Look at verse 19, go home to your friends. He clearly had a life before this. Now how he got to this stage we're not told. But look at the impact that it's had on his life. Socially, he's in the tombs by himself, in a place of the dead where nobody else would be. But not just socially, it's impacted him physically as well. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he'd often be bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched them apart. He had supernatural strength. Supernatural strength. No one could do anything with him anymore. They, could, they tried binding him with chains. Perhaps he'd hurt people before, we don't know. But it affected him physically as well. Not just physically, but mentally. Look at the anguish of his mind that's described. It's a horrifying picture, isn't it? Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out, shrieking out, and cutting himself with stones. Here is a picture of, a disturbing picture of the influence that these unclean spirits have had on this man. That's what they do. They, they hate the work of God, they hate mankind, they hate men and women. And look at the impact they had upon this man's life. Socially, physically, mentally, every aspect of his life. Under the complete control and oppression 
of this, these evil spirits. Yet it was the purpose of Christ to visit this man, this man, this man who no one else wanted anything to do with. Yes, it was. Because he came to do what no one else could. He didn't come to bind him in chains. In fact, the opposite, he came to set him free. Came to set him free. In fact, that was the very purpose of the Lord Jesus coming to this earth in general, actually. Look at how he describes it himself, quoting from the book of Isaiah. He, uh, standing up previously in the synagogue, he said this, Of himself, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. There is a man captivated by the wickedness of this evil spirit, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Didn't get more oppressed than this man to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. You see, the mission of the Lord Jesus was not restricted to this man here. In fact, it wasn't even limited to the time he lived here on earth. Even today, he is setting free captives and oppressed. No, not just captives by, by unclean spirits, although he can still do that today, of course, too. There's many different things that we can be captive by and held captive by, held under bondage. Maybe some of them affect you. You can think of some bigger ones, alcohol, drugs, gambling, lying, pornography, temper. The list could go on, captivated. The Bible summarises all of these things under one word, of course, sin. And yes, of course, there are degrees of sin. But the conclusion the Bible reaches is this, that we're all captives to it, one way or another. We are all, like me, you, captives to it. That's how the Bible describes it. It describes sin as a master. You can go to the book of, look at the book of Romans chapter 6. You can see it there as an oppressor, an enslaver. That's how the Bible describes us. We are under the oppression of sin. And that's seen so, so real in our lives. And so many are, are, like this man, have their social and physical and mental lives destroyed by the captive power of sin. The Lord Jesus Christ came to set us free. He came to set us free. Just like he did for this man. Let's look at the power next. Verses 16 to 13. Oh, sorry, verses 6 to 13. The power of the Lord Jesus. As soon as he stepped off the boat, you can see that this man was there to meet him. Uh, verse 2, when Jesus stepped off the boat, immediately they met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. Christ had a purpose to meet this man, and it was no coincidence that at the very time of their arrival, it coincided with this man coming out of the tombs. You know, just a side point, it's no coincidence that you're here today either. Um, I don't know why you're here. Uh, maybe you're here because you come here every week, maybe you're here because someone's invited you, or maybe you're here because you're genuinely interested to hear more about this man, Jesus Christ. It's no coincidence that you're here here, here today. Whenever the word of God has comes and speaks to a person, it's no accident. Think about that. You know, this man might think he just kind of randomly came out of a tomb and there, <laughs> there was the Lord Jesus. No, not a bit of it. He came, the Lord Jesus came to meet him. The Lord Jesus comes to meet people today. It's still his intent. And you can see then from verse 6 that he had an immediate knowledge, at least these demons did, of who the Jesus was. Look how he is described. The Son, look at uh, look verse 6. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. 
prostrated himself before him and crying out with a loud voice he said what have you to do with me Jesus son of the most high God there's a knowledge here unlike the blindness of the, the people it, blindness of us today these, these evil spirits these demons knew exactly who was there who stood before him the son of the most high God it reminds me of what James says when talking about the distinction between simple belief in existence and true genuine faith he says even the demons believe and tremble well we're seeing that here they knew that this man they knew more than what the people did the people around him they just saw a person a carpenter's son these people these demons they saw who he was now how much the extent of their knowledge we're not told but it seems to be it seems to be quite high they knew that he was Jesus son of the most high God they knew something of his intention too they said why have you what have you to do with me why are you here why are you here he clearly had um, uh, this man clearly had had fear you can sense it in in the the response as the demons spoke through him. You know, it's interesting, um, in Matthew's Gospel, if you have a look at the parallel account there in chapter 8, they say this, Have you come here to torment us before the time? Because they knew that God had ordained a time when they would be finally judged and condemned to an eternity of punishment for their rebellion. And it would be at the hands of that man who stood before them. At that man who stood before them. So they say, why are you here now? Have you come to torment us before that ultimate time would come where all of that will happen? And of course that was in response to what the Lord had said in verse 8. It seems to be the ordering being that the man comes before him. The Lord Jesus says in verse 8, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And in response we have the words in verse 7. I find it interesting then the response of the Lord Jesus. We're going to see we're going to see his authority, but notice how the Lord allows the conversation to continue. He says, "What is your name? What is your name?" Now I can't we can't tell the tone of what the Lord Jesus how the Lord Jesus says things by reading the simple text. But I wonder if there's a tenderness here, whether he was trying to speak to the man himself, because so far it was just those unclean spirits that were clearly using this man's tongue to speak to the Lord Jesus Christ. What is your name? Yet, it's the demons who respond in this chilling way, switching from the singular to the plural, my name is Legion, for we are many. Man, not just possessed by one unclean spirit, but totally dominated by many. A legion of them. A legion of them crushing him and oppressing him. And they begged him. This is the first instance we're going to see of begging. It's quite interesting. There's three of them. But here they beg him. They beg him not to banish them from the country. Actually, not to banish them, Luke tells us, into the abyss, out of the world itself, to be non-effectual as they were before. But instead, they, they beg him to enter these pigs that are there. A request to which he gives his permission. So he gave them permission, verse 13. And they go and they cause, they enter the pigs and they cause them to charge down the bank into the sea. What do we learn about the Lord Jesus here? Well, we see, don't we, the absolute authority of this man, a power in this man. We see, as Mark is trying to tell us, a man who is more than just a man, a man who is 
the Son of God, who has power not just over sickness, not just over the storm that you see previously, but over these powers of darkness themselves. His authority, you know, stretches beyond even that. It's important to remember this, that he has authority over us too. Because Paul reminds the people in Athens this, he says, he warns them that God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. That's Jesus Christ. Not just authority over the world, not just authority over earth, but authority over us too. He's a man of authority and he demonstrates his power here to do what these other people couldn't do. He didn't chain him up, he simply spoke. Spoke. He gave them permission and they entered out of that man into the pigs. What's the reaction of the people then? We're moving quickly through, but what's the reaction of the people, verses 14 to 17? They, they come, they gather after they hear what's happened. And they see in verse, um, verse 15, they saw, they come to Jesus and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had, be, who had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And they were, what's their reaction? They were afraid. Note their fear. Why were they afraid? Well, here was a person who had demonstrated without a shadow of a doubt. They could see the evidence in their own eyes that he had the power and authority that far exceeded that of the man who had been terrorising their tombs. Here was a different kind of man altogether. And they've already seen the price of having such a person among them. They've seen the price physically. They saw all their pigs run into the 2,000 of them. The financial loss, no doubt, to them would have been significant. 2,000 pigs charging into the sea. And so they saw what would happen if such a person stayed among them. They saw the price, the cost of the Lord of having or following the Lord Jesus Christ. And they demanded that he left, not because they didn't believe him. It was clear what had done. The man himself was irrefutable evidence of his power and his authority. But instead they asked him to leave because they feared the implications of having such a person among them. It already cost them their pigs. What else would such a person demand upon their lives? Now, why do some people reject the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, clearly there are those who simply don't believe him. They simply don't believe that he exists or that he is who he says he was. You know, that's not the only reason. There are also those who come to an an understanding and a belief that he is who he says he was. But they they also come to an understanding of the cost to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he tells us himself. Whoever will come after me, the Lord Jesus said, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me following the Lord Jesus Christ it involves submitting ourselves under that authority that he showed here it means no longer living life for yourself but giving all of that up for the sake of following the Lord Jesus if you want to be free from sin free from the oppression of sin he is the only one who can do it but he he demands your very life itself now have you weighed up that cost have we weighed up that cost the people here weighed up their cost, they didn't want it. They said to go away. That's a choice you can make. You can come to believe that the Lord Jesus who he says, exactly who he says he is, and you can decide not for me. Not for me. But there's another reaction here, there's another man. We haven't really thought about him. It's interesting that before we even get to the impact it has upon this man, we see the rejection of the people, but now we see it. Verses 18 to 20, the proclaimer. What about this man then? Well, he was going to learn firsthand what it meant to be a disciple under a new authority. He was under the authority of these demons, but now he's under a different Lord. And what does he want to do? Well, first notice his transformation. 
an incredible transformation in this man's life. Where previously he had been restless and frenzied, cutting himself with stones, now he was calm and sitting and in control. And where he had previously been physically and mentally just stripped bare, now he was clothed and in his right mind. What a transformation. He was a new man. A new man. And that's what Jesus does. He takes people who are broken and he doesn't just tidy them up a bit. He doesn't just improve their lives. He makes them new. It makes sense then that this man wanted nothing more than to be with the Lord Jesus. That's what he said. He begged him, verse 18, that he might be with him. He just wanted to be with the Lord Jesus. He wanted to be, follow this man who had done so much for him. Notice how this is the third, third reference we have to someone begging the Lord Jesus. The demons begged that he, would go, that he would let them go into the pigs. The men, the women of the towns, they begged him that he would leave. And he said yes to both of those, but he says no to this third instance here. He says no to this man. He says no to this man. Why does he say no? Because he had a work for him to do. You know, being a Christian, following the Lord Jesus Christ, is not just about, it's not at all doing what I want to do. It's about doing what he wants us to do. In fact, it's about making ourselves available. Romans 6 says this, presenting ourselves to God, making ourselves available for his use as he sees fit. The Lord said no, not because it was wrong for the man to want to follow the Lord Jesus, as in physically follow him, be with him. Not because it was inappropriate, or not because he didn't like the man or didn't love the man. He clearly did. But he had a more important task for him to do. He said, go home. Go to the people who you love, to your friends, verse 19. Go to the people who perhaps you had hurt before, the, the, the people whose, whose relationships with had been previously broken. Go back to them and tell them this. Tell them just how much the Lord has done for you and just how much mercy he's had upon you. It's a wonderful thing. This man was to be a living, breathing testimony of the Lord's mercy and the Lord's power. And we finish our passage then in verse 20 with him taking up that command immediately. There's, he does it. He doesn't, he doesn't challenge. He does what every disciple should do. He obeys and he goes and he proclaims to the region around just how much Jesus had done for him. And it says everyone marveled. You know, this is a real challenge at the end here. It's a verse perhaps that we don't like to speak on or think of because it's, you can feel the challenge on us too. Because those of us who are Christians, we have the same testimony to tell we've been set free because the power of the Lord Jesus Christ saved us and we have a message to tell we tell a message different to this man in the sense we look back to the point where the Lord Jesus Christ died upon the cross and there we see exactly what happened we see a man who died for us and rose to life again and the Lord Jesus tells us to go and tell tell exactly what the Lord has done for us how much the Lord has done for us and it starts at the home it starts where you live right now i want to finish with this challenge for all of us the bible doesn't call us all to be missionaries to go to far off lands but he, he, he does call us the lord does call us to be witnesses to him where we are right here right now and so let's feel that challenge to to declare to proclaim to share with other people around us, the people who we rub shoulders with all the time, just how much the Lord has done for us. I wonder how much we appreciate it. I wonder if that's the problem. I think it is in my life. I don't think I appreciate enough just how much the Lord has done for me. I know it in my head, but has it reached my heart? 
If it does, then without a moment's thought, just like this man, we will go and we will tell other people. We will go to our homes, to our families, to our friends, and we will tell them just how much the Lord has done for us. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we give thanks for this passage. We thank you for the power of the Lord Jesus Christ in freeing this man. The authority of the Son of God as he walks upon this earth. How clear and evident it was. But now, our God, we have, we have a choice. Do we choose to follow this man? To repent of our sins and to cast ourselves upon his mercy. The Bible promises, promises us that if we do so, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And we thank you that that is true today. And we pray, our God, that if there be any who are, who are still deciding and making that choice here, that they would choose to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. So take up their cross and follow him. And help us as those who are believers here to do exactly that each day. To, um, to be thankful and grateful to him for all that he has done for us and to share that with a needy world around us. Thank you for this, for this uh, account in the scriptures. Thank you, our God, for the Lord Jesus Christ, for his victory ultimately over all those principalities and powers of the cross. Yeah. For the fact that he is um, the victorious one. That our God, the future is secure. That one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But until that day comes, help us to be faithful, to proclaim this message and to, to worship God through him. In his name we pray. Amen.